0: would uh, turn in your Bibles please to uh, Luke chapter 7. I'm uh, in a series uh, that's entitled Surprised by Grace. There's so much grace in the book of Luke and there are so many places where it shows up in in that setting was surprising not so much a surprise to us probably but in that setting and so uh, I want to begin first by simply reading from chapter 7 verse uh, 36 to 50. You know I'm going to ask you to stand as you'll read it from your Bibles or read it from the PowerPoint but I'll lead. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him he went to the Pharisees house and reclined at the table a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees house so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume as she stood behind him at his feet weeping Tell me, teacher, he said, two people own money to a certain moneylender. One, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven Put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Please be seated. Simon, Pharisee. He has invited Jesus to his house for dinner. Uh, Jesus has accepted. And in that particular culture, they didn't sit around a table like we do, but they, they reclined and that means that they uh, would lean on one arm, and their table, their head would be towards the table, and then their, the rest of their body would stick out away from it. And uh, before reclining. How is that? Could receive leftovers. You know, I sure appreciate uh, a PA. I know God has given me a good voice. Uh, forever when we are in restaurants and stuff, my wife will kind of prod me, lower your voice because it carries so well. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. And I'm sure in a different culture I would have been okay. But we live in a, in a culture where we learn to depend on these. And it's very comfortable not to have to, comfortable for you too, I'm sure, that I don't have to raise my voice. Well, in this uh, uh, dramatic event in the life of Jesus, there are three main players. There's uh, Simon the host, there's Jesus the invited guest, and then there's that uh, woman who is described here as a sinner who simply shows up. And uh, before we look into that, I want to observe something about the way we look at things. That uh, old saying is very true that beauty, right, is in the eye of the beholder and uh, someone has wisely written that there is an interaction between seeing and being. The kind of person you are affects the kind of world that you see and uh, what you see affects the kind of person that you are. Uh, different people see different things, and uh, I mentioned how my wife will uh, prod me, uh, not to, you know, to, to to lower my voice. But if you've been married for a while, and if you've been married 50 years, like Ruth and Jim, I think uh, you've experienced over and over again how the two of you see things so differently. And... Uh, and, you know, uh, Marty will notice things that I don't notice, and I will notice things that she doesn't notice, and, of course, it has to do with, uh, you know, our gravitation. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to read an editorial that you don't agree with and to be able to say that that's a well-written article, Right. <laughs> we tend to see the excellence of the writing on the basis of whether or not we agree with it. At least that's the way it is with me. We, we see things differently and it affects our opinion. If you have more than one child, you see it in your children and how they look at different things and how they see their world differently. And As we look at the three individuals here that are in this story this event that really happened in the life of Jesus, we'll see the contrasts in how they look differently at the situation. Uh, We will notice the contrast between how the woman and Simon saw Jesus and such a contrast between the way that Simon and Jesus viewed the woman let's begin with the uninvited guest the woman who showed up she comes to see Jesus bringing her costly perfume and Jewish ladies commonly wore a perfume flask suspended from a cord around the neck she approaches him planning to anoint his feet or maybe his head but it seems that her emotions got the best of her and she broke down and wept and the tears fell on his feet and so she promptly wiped them with her hair even though Jewish ladies did not unbind their hair in public and in the grip of her deep emotion oblivious it seems of public opinion who cares she kisses his feet and pours the perfume on them <clears throat> now we're not told how she knew about Jesus or what kind of previous encounter that she might have had with him perhaps she heard his teaching and applied it to herself maybe there had been a personal one-on-one encounter we're not told maybe she was one of those who had responded by repenting at the teaching of John the Baptist But in whatever way she had already encountered Jesus and or His teaching, she has responded positively, in some way, to His love and His grace. But notice how she is known. Notice how her identity in that town is is, uh, described here. Verse 37, A woman in that town who... It says, lived a sinful life. That's how she was known. Most likely she was a prostitute. Her sinfulness was public knowledge. And Simon knew this. Being well known in her neighborhood, we can imagine the sense of shame that she carried. And yet, somehow she knew that she could approach Jesus She assumed that it was safe to come before Him, likely having a history of being used, discarded perhaps, and yet evidently she was not afraid that Jesus would cast her off, or would uh, cast off her intended act of worship. Her sense of confidence in Him was not misplaced. For Jesus shows not rejection, but acceptance of this extravagant expression of love. He accepted her offering, and accepting the offering, he was accepting her as a person. And that's how God's grace operates. It accepts us as we are, where we are. At the same time as Walter Trobisch has written, and this is what he said, Christ accepts us as we are. But when He accepts us, we cannot remain as we are. Even as Paul said in Romans 6.1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. Some of you remember that in the King James. God forbid is what it says there. and you think you're familiar with that. And so grace isn't only about forgiving, but it's also about getting us on the right track. But, and I think this is so important, acceptance comes first. Grace accepts. A few weeks ago I referred to the philosophy of uh, Gull Lake uh, Baptist Camp and how their director uh, Steve Roadhouse had uh, explained on their uh, 90th anniversary as a camp what their philosophy was. And uh, now Gull Lake is uh, looking forward to uh, 100 years. And they're already starting to you know they 're starting to prepare for that, which is coming two two years down the road. Well, I happened to be out there a couple of weeks ago at a pastor 's retreat and uh, and as I was, uh, I was downstairs talking to the person at the desk there, and I pointed out how I had told you people about the philosophy of Gull Lake Baptist camp and uh, and how that Steve Roadhouse had explained it and uh, and then she pointed to the wall there it was still on the wall. These are the. This is what they are saying. They, they, first of all, giving campers a sense of belonging, and then a sense of believing, and then out of that, a sense of becoming. What a what a great philosophy. Acceptance comes first. But most and most people need to have that sense of belonging first, and then they make that commitment of believing, and out of that. There's a sense of becoming. And to the extent that we represent Jesus well, we too will be a people of grace where others will feel that acceptance. Even those of whom it could be said as it was said of her, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. But notice the contrast as we move on. How Simon looked at Jesus and how the two of them looked differently at the woman. Simon the host. And we see in verse 39 how his mental wheels are beginning to turn. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, how that this woman had displayed such affection for our Lord he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is that she is a sinner he is making some observations and assumptions here and conclusions out of them Obviously, if Jesus is a prophet, then he should know what kind of a person this is. And obviously, he doesn't have any special knowledge, because if he did, he would somehow restrain her and not allow her to touch him. It's like she's kind of a spiritual leper in his mind. And so, um, since he does nothing to stop her, he, he, he's obviously been fooled. In his eyes, Jesus is not a prophet. And the way that Simon uh, sees things is you have to be worthy first. Looking at the woman through his religious lenses, he sees her as a sinner, once a prostitute, always a prostitute. For him, through his mindset, His way of looking at things, grace and forgiveness, have to be rationed or deserved. In his mind, forgiveness and a new start simply did not compute. But what about Jesus' viewpoint? How did he see her? Jesus the guest. Not a prophet? Well, he obviously had a handle of what Simon was thinking. (laughs) So here we have a little bit of irony here. Simon concludes that this one is not a prophet, but Jesus is able to see what he is thinking. He's got prophetic insight into Simon's mind. And then he asks if he can speak to him about something, and he says, Go for it. And he tells him this parable Two people took out a loan from a certain banker, the one a small loan the other one a larger one, it was like 10 to 1, the one 500 denarii, the other uh, 10 dinari, And we're told that one denarii represented one day's work or one day's labor. So we could say well maybe it was like a hundred thousand dollars on the one hand and the other one borrowed about ten thousand dollars and neither of them are able to meet their obligation and so in both cases, this banker writes off their loan. He forgives them both. And so, of course, uh, Jesus asks Simon, which one do you suppose will love this generous money lender the most? And Simon says, uh, well, I guess the one whose debt was the largest. What else could he say? I think that was obvious. Exactly, Jesus says, you have judged correctly. But then he goes and makes a personal application, and he contrasts how Simon welcomed Jesus to the way that this woman responded to him. Now I'm told from commentator that Simon was not rude. Simon provided what was necessary. But she did the extra things. That was the difference. And so he says how that, you know, I came here, you didn't provide water for washing my feet, but she has wiped my feet with her tears and with her hair. You didn't kiss me, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't pour any oil on my head, but she squandered that perfume and anointed me. But then he makes a point. The one who has been forgiven only a little will love only a little. And the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. And it's a principle. The one who has been forgiven just a little, in his own mind, he's been forgiven just a little, isn't going to love that much. But the one who is overwhelmed by the grace that has forgiven him, and he perceived that it's a lot that he's been forgiven, that person will love much. And of course, this woman displayed much, much love for Jesus. Now, he's not teaching here that it is her response of love that causes her forgiveness, but rather that this grateful affection This worship is evidence that she is deeply aware of immeasurable forgiveness. And so, who is she in Jesus' eyes? Well, she's a forgiven sinner. Sinner. It's not that Jesus takes her sin lightly. Her many sins, he says in verse 47, or ESV has her sins which are many. Sins which are many are forgiven. No pretense here. There's no condoning of all the things that she has done. Uh, He's not excusing it. He's not saying, you know, she had a bad background. She's been used by men. That may all be true. And it may be part of his thinking about her. But he's not excusing her sin. He's saying her sins, which are many. He's responsible. And so whatever might have transpired, he still sees her as responsible. And so I think it's important as we teach about grace that Jesus is not minimizing sin and he's not minimizing sexual sin or any kind of sin but he sees the sinner through the eyes of grace and that is the difference so is it her love that saves her? no but her expressive love makes it evident that she has already somehow entered into grace and forgiveness The text also tells us that it is an expression of faith. Verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Saving faith is active. It's not just believing the right thing. But she acted on her faith in the very act of coming to our Lord. She demonstrated that she had faith. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Christ offering himself you and I recognizing that we don't have a claim, we don't have merits of our own, we come to him needing his grace. And then he responds by giving us the hope that not only are we forgiven, but that he will guide us and to walk more in his direction. But I want to say here that usually it's going to be with some stumbling. we begin to walk and following him but usually there will be stumbling in fact i can guarantee there will be stumbling and so we never lose we never get past the point of needing more grace we've been singing often in this series the song that the whole north american continent sings so often amazing grace philip yancey has a note about John Newton that is not perhaps as well known as the song is but he said that uh, John Newton was a coarse, cruel slave trader and I think that part is well known he first called out to God in the midst of a storm that nearly threw him overboard Newton came to see the light only gradually continuing to ply his trade even after his conversion. That's the part that I don't think is so well known. In fact, he wrote the song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, while waiting in an African harbor for a shipment of slaves. Later, though, he renounced his profession, became a minister, and joined William Wilberforce in the fight against slavery. John Newton never lost sight of the depth from which he had been lifted, He never lost sight of grace. And when he wrote that saved a wretch like me, he meant those words with all his heart. The story of John Newton, I think, illustrates so well grace. It's for the greatest of sinners that saved a wretch like me. Known for her many sins, our text says, and the other thing it illustrates that it takes time to walk as we should. John Newton didn't abandon the horror of trading slaves until a bit later. And then I think the third thing it illustrates is that our experience of grace will be passed on to help others. We become a people of grace. So not only do we continue to receive grace for ourselves, but we become channels of grace. When Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit to be his way of being present in the individual Christian and in his church. And so we, in our togetherness, are Christ to the world. I'm thinking of our annual meeting today, and we're looking ahead to our future. And when we move to Ambleside, even as we have to try to be that way here, We have to be the very presence of Christ in that community. Dispensers of grace, if you like, as we see in this particular uh, story and this, um, this account. Yancey also says that I believe that dispensing God's grace is the Christian's main contribution. And as Gordon MacDonald, he quotes him, said, the world can do anything the church can do except one thing, it cannot show grace. We may or may not want to order our priorities in that same way. We may not fully agree with that. I'm not sure. I, I think it's probably true. world sometimes does show grace, but the, we are in a special position to show grace. But there's one thing that is certain. Jesus saw people like this woman through the eyes of grace. And he is our model. And then as I move to a close, one more link I want to make here that comes out of this lesson. Notice, Simon didn't have much appreciation for any grace in his life. He didn't have much appreciation that he even needed grace. He didn't have a sense that he'd been forgiven a lot. And it would seem he didn't have much grace towards anyone else either, especially towards this woman. And the principle, of course, is that, is that the more aware we are of grace having been given to us, the more natural it is for us to want to extend grace to others. Now, that doesn't mean that... We have to have lived a notorious life to appreciate grace. And we need to stress that. Praise God for everyone who has been able to avoid some of those sins that are so damaging. And even the opportunities that some of our young people have had, like our kids, and I was talking to a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, who was pastor in Winnipeg when we were there, And how he's so grateful that his kids have continued to follow the Lord and they're involved in church and so on. Praise God for those kinds of things, of course. But you know what? We look at that as grace too. If you have had the opportunity to be raised in a good place and you were able to follow the Lord early so that you avoided a lot of the pitfalls, that in itself is a gift. And the more we are aware of all that we have received, Forgiveness and benefits and blessings and how that He has heaped His blessing upon us and we are so fortunate the more we are in a position where we want to bless others. But there's also that sense of sin. We may not be guilty of outward sins of the flesh, but think of inward sins like pride, ungratefulness, resentments attitudes of one-upmanship sense of superiority or in terms of what has been said in our text this morning seeing others through critical eyes rather than looking at others through the lenses of grace those are the kinds of things that we have to bring before the Lord constantly to recognize His grace in our own life so that we can be gracious to others. And it could be, it could be that if I'm especially pickyish with others, maybe I haven't fully embraced grace for myself. Maybe I haven't fully understood how generous He has been towards me and how so often God has overlooked or accommodated me in spite of all my weaknesses. And the more that I'm aware of that, it would seem to me the less judgmental I'm going to be of others. And you know, that doesn't only apply to the way we treat non-Christians. It applies to the way we treat one another. Looking at each other through the lenses of grace. On my mother's stone, we chose James 4, 6 but he gives more grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And uh, I, think we, I think we chose well, but I have to acknowledge that uh, my view of my mother, the way I look at my mother, had a bearing on that as well. But yeah, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, take their place, as we sing a song before communion. And as we come to the table this morning, let us come with the realization that the ground beneath the cross is level. That whether our behavior has been more like Simon or more like someone with a notorious reputation, we come to this table only on the basis of grace.